Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Dr. Yogesh Joshi, and today we have with us Dr. Anit Mukherjee to reflect on the evolution of civil-military relations under Prime Minister Modi. Anit Mukherjee is a Deputy Head of Graduate Studies and an Associate Professor in the South Asia Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University. He's the author of The Absent Dialogue, Politicians, Bureaucrats, and the Military in India, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. He joined RSIS after a postdoctorate at the Center for Advanced Study of India, University of Pennsylvania, and a PhD from Paul H. Nitzikol School of Advanced International Studies, John Hopkins University. From 2010 to 2012, he was a research fellow at the Institute of Defense Studies and Analysis, New Delhi. While in the doctoral program, he worked at the Brookings Institution and was a summer associate at Rand Corporation. Personally, he has been a mentor and a friend. Anit, welcome to South Asia Chat. Thank you so much. It is so good to be here and good to see you here also, Yogesh. Thanks a lot. So the first question, unlike Huntington, who called for objective control as the template for civil military relations and democracies, and your PhD supervisor, Eliot Cohen, who emphasized unequal dialogue with civilian supremacy, you labeled the state of civil military relations in India as an absent dialogue. Can you elaborate on the reasons behind such a characterization and its implications for India's military power? Thanks so much. That's a fantastic question. Um, so as you know, I was in the army and I was somewhat inspired to look into this topic um, into great detail because this is a very, very constant and alive refrain within the Indian Armed Forces. If you speak to anybody who serves in the Indian Armed Forces, they always complain about the sort of civil military relations which exists inside India. So that's what animated me once I quit the army. And once I entered the world of academia, I came across these different theoretical uh, predictions or um, implications of the model to be adopted. So I looked at the objective control, which was said by kind of like Samuel Huntington, um, which unsurprisingly is very popular within um, all people who serve in the armed forces, because the assumption behind it is simply this, that you give autonomy to the armed forces and because they are a professional force, they will enhance their effectiveness. Uh, my argument was that's that's not totally true because at time we need informed civilian intervention to enhance the effectiveness. And the other approach I saw was Elliot Cohen's unequal dialogue, in which case he looked at the experience of four wartime military commanders. So he looked at Lincoln, Clemenskew, Churchill, and Ben Gurion, and he basically argued that look, all four of them interfered in what we would understand to be the affairs of the armed forces to enhance effectiveness. Where I come in on this debate is simply this, that under certain conditions, what we might see is not unequal dialogue or objective control, but we might actually see an absent dialogue, which is there's not enough substantive discussion going on between both the military and the civilians on important topics like strategy, political objectives, military doctrines, military education. And so I, I then put forward this approach of, if you do not have informed civilian um, engagement with the military, you will have the outlines of the absent dialogue. And for me, the way I 
thought of the absent dialogue was simply this. If there's strong bureaucratic control, but fair degree of autonomy within the armed forces on what they consider to be in their own domain. And so, yeah, I mean, I have this approach called the absent dialogue, which I think applies to other countries as well. I mean, it's it's not just about India, but as I have gone into the book, I've actually seen countries like Canada also where there are complaints that there's not enough uh, civilian engagement. Moving on, it seems the absent dialogue captured the essence of civil military dysfunction and its implications on military efficiency. Beyond a thorough academic work, it also provided a template for civil military reforms in India. You, for example, had been arguing for the establishment of the position of chief of defense staff and the department of military affairs. How do you think the book has aged given the spurt of defense reforms India has implemented in the last few years? And how satisfied are you with these reforms? That's a great question. Um, I wish the book had got published before the, the PM announced the creation of a chief of defense staff because then I could have taken credit which obviously I don't deserve for the creation of a CDS. Uh, no, I think um, we are at a very exciting time uh, when we look at the Indian Armed Forces. I mean, even apart from the clashes we saw on the border with China, which indicates a big churning, then I think there's an enormous amount of transformation occurring within the Ministry of Defense and the service headquarters. Um, I think we should give credit to the prime minister for creating a chief of defense staff. This is an issue that has been bedeviling us since the 1960s onwards. There's been constant demand that we need to have a CDS. Um, he has given an opportunity now to the Indian military to set its house in order. So in some ways, uh, these are the sort of steps that we need, except, so um, I think the book has aged well in some ways. If you were to think about what sort of a template do we need to change the processes? So in my book, I look at five distinct um, like elements of military effectiveness. I look at weapons procurement. I look at jointness, that is the ability of the Army, Air Force, and the Navy to operate together. I look at defense planning. I look at officer education, and I look at officer promotion policies. And I think in each of these chapters, I actually acknowledge things that are working well and things that need improvement. So for instance, on jointness, we all know that India needs joint theater commands, that we all need to have a greater emphasis on joint trees, so as to speak. And in the same way, you need to have more developed defense planning processes and you need to have more joint education also. So um, in that sense, I think the book had aged well because it engages with all of these elements of debates which are occurring within the Indian Armed Forces. How it will actually transform into um, institutional change on the ground is, is, an, is a topic we need to go back to again after two or three years. Where would you locate the causal origins of these reforms? Should we focus on the structural threats, particularly India's increasingly difficult security situation vis-a-vis -vis China and Pakistan? Or is it much more of a top-down political decision of the Modi government, which has forced the military to embrace reforms? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think we have a fair idea until now on why did the prime minister announce and go ahead with the decision to create a CDS. 
as you well know, in his first term, there was a lot of speculation about imminent reforms. However, when we look at his defense policy, his first term was somewhat underwhelming. Um, I think there was a lot of talk and a lot of expectations, but I don't think any of that got delivered into substantive defense policy reforms. Um, in fact, on the contrary, the amount of allocation that he made to the defense budget decreased year upon year. So I think there was a fair criticism to be made about their performance in this sector in the first term. Um, some argue that this was also because the prime minister expectation was that he'll work with the military to enforce change. And um, he got disillusioned over time because the military was not able to come up with transformatory steps. And so I think after he got reelected, his first step was, you know, I'm going in for a big bang reform and I'm going to announce it and the military will have to follow no matter what. Uh, so um, I would think that it, perhaps not as much structural as his his desire to leave an imprint in the field of defense policy and say that, look, he has done the thing that was being debated for the last 60 years, and he has come forward and put forward and pushed through the idea. This has to be welcomed. But again, I think the important thing to see is, is the way that they go about implementing it. And that's a very interesting take on defense reforms in India. Moving on, one also gets intrigued by the personal relationship which the Modi government has created between civilian leadership and the military leadership. Do you think military institutions are being replaced by personal relationships? And does such bypassing of institutions in promotions, etc., an unhealthy trend for the military? Is the Modi government following a truly unequal dialogue model, which may be more efficient than the previous practice of absolute autonomy offered to the military? Um, another great question. So. There's always been an element of politics to the appointment and the performance and the conduct of very senior military officers. This has been true from the time of the first prime minister. If you look at Nehru, when we look at Indira Gandhi, when we look at successive prime ministers, um, people assume that, look, um, at that at that level, there's no element of the politics involved. But that element has always been there. Um, when we look at this current government, I think there have been some criticism about his attempt to supposedly politicize the Indian Armed Forces, and that's something that needs to be watched very, very carefully. Um, however, I'm not sure I'm as yet convinced that the Prime Minister has done so. I think the biggest criticism comes with the, with the appointment of uh, General Avat as the Chief of Army Staff, uh, when another officer who was India to him was kind of October. And even now, there's some amount of talk about, you know, that the CDS is a politicized appointment. I think to a certain extent, the CDS, whosoever he will be, whether Army, Air Force, or the Navy, will have to be responsive to the political class. That's the logic of democracy, right? I mean, we have elected a prime minister and empowered him and the cabinet with making decisions on behalf of the people. So to a certain extent, um, they have a right to uh, enforce decisions on the military. Um, so I'm not entirely convinced that he has politicized the armed forces, as a few people argue, but it's an issue that requires to be watched because um, we have seen instances of it in the past where uh, the military officers have 
look towards the political class to further their own careers, and that really ends badly. Um, and so it's it's something that needs to be watched very very closely. Uh, sure. So just a spin off uh, from the previous question in the sense that you have been watching this space uh, very closely since the formation of the chief of defense staff. Uh, how would you rate, uh, you know, the success of this new institution within the military, particularly in terms of reforms uh, such as, you know, joint, ex joint creating jointness, joint procurement, uh, theater commands? Uh, uh, in, in your in your understanding, uh, how successful has been General That's a good question. Among the big problems that I have with the with the CDS and his team is that we frankly don't know what they're doing. Um, unfortunately, policy discussions or ideas are floated through unsubstantiated media reports, almost like trial balloons, right? I mean, there's just suddenly somebody would come out with a report of this is under consideration. We don't know the authenticity of these reports. So ultimately, this becomes an exercise in panditry, so as to speak. We kind of speculate. So among the things I would like to see from the CDS and his office is some sort of a vision document that they have on what sort of a joint theater command do they want? What sort of an approach do they have? Not just in the next year, but in the next two years, in the next five years, in the next 10 years, give us some clarity. And because there's no clarity, there's all sorts of speculation. I know that these, that these issues are being debated, but I think they should respect the wisdom of the Indian strategic community and debate them more openly and seek their inputs a little bit more to see what fits for purpose. You just can't float these ideas overnight and suddenly say, this is our idea and we are going to implement it. Because as we all know, um, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So unless you expose your ideas to sunlight and criticism from all sides, you will not have really good ideas which would go to the top. Um, so if you ask me about what do I think about the performance of the first CDS, I wish him and his team would focus a little bit more on coming up with a vision document. And in the absence of that, I have no firm assessment of how well they're doing. My second last question to you is that one of the major stories in India's defense sector lately is the success in defense indigenization. Do you think India has made some significant strides in the field? And how do you foresee the future of defense indigenization? That's a really good question. I'm going to put an asterisk on your claim that it's a success story, though. I think right. I think what the government has done has, um, in the last at least three, four, five years, has pushed, and I think it's a good thing, they have pushed this idea of indigenization. They have pushed all the stakeholders, which, as I argue in my book, we're working in very different silos, we're working at cross purposes, we're not really talking to each other. And so what the government has done in a good way is push through this idea that we need to have a mature defense industry base where the stakeholders, which is the armed forces and the defense industry and the technology people and the science and industry people can all work together and in a way create jobs in India and get the best equipment for our soldiers. Um, and airmen and the sailors. So that intention is there. Um, and they have made the right policy choices so far, uh, I think. But before I call it a success story, I would like to see more proof of not just factories being created, of defense industry coming up on the ground, on jobs being created, 
on a substantive element of let's say FDI in the defense sector or foreign companies finding an environment because as you all know i mean even though they have created let's say some idea of a land corridor in uttar pradesh and you know tamil nadu to establish a defense industrial bases i still haven't seen much come up there um so um i think we are still a little bit away from calling it a success story having said all that i think they are on the right lines i would just want to see this whole idea of implementation hona chahiye as you all know is an old familiar complaint about the indian establishment so i would want to see evidence of that first we cannot but let you go without asking you about how india should the military prepare itself for the challenges thrown by china's massive rise and the prospect of a hegemonic struggle between the us and china how do you think the military should prepare for the great power rivalry with china that's a really good question um i think along with this element of institutional kind of changes right you have created a chief of defense staff and a dma we need significant internal changes within the indian military and these are internal changes pertaining to professional military education it is pertaining to man management it is pertaining to how they think about hr sources so for instance just to give a couple of ideas i think the military needs to seriously think about what it means to deal with the china challenge which means that it needs to grow in house experts who have spent years studying different parts of the world under the current hr policies that is not possible because we are still attached to the old ways of doing work and the old ways of promotion policies of dealing with manpower so i would argue that when we look at um how we think about professional military education how we think about grooming and training officers we need to send officers outside the country to grow greater capital and wealth and again i think it also means that the military has to be more open to um embracing this civilian world and the expertise that is outside um in its own education um process so to cut a long story short um i i i don't think that we have prepared enough in terms of our internal changes to deal with the, the with the challenge posed by the rise of china arit thank you so much for helping us understand the present and the future of civil military interactions in india and how it impacts india's defense and military efficacy personally i have learned a lot over the last 20 25 minutes of this podcast and i'm sure our listeners from around the world would share my assessment you were listening to south asia chat to learn more about our work please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg